Welcome to the next edition of the P5 Podcast. With me today, I have Travis Christofferson, who is a friend, um, a recently very prolific author of several books on not just cancer, but healthcare. And it when you go through his books, you find a broad history of how healthcare evolved and how we got here and the decisions we make. He uh, also runs the Foundation for Metabolic Cancer Therapies and Care Oncology USA. So welcome and thank you for coming back because you were here just almost three years ago last time. Three years. Yeah. Thanks for having me back, David. So um, it, there's a lot of stuff to cover. Um, so I have in the last year and change, you've published a book called Curable, um, which goes back in many ways in a history of, of healthcare in the last, call it 150 years, and kind of how we got here and the and gets into a lot of the psychological issues that impact how we make decisions and the biases we have. And, and they do, do a very interesting job relating it to investing and, um, and even, and even Moneyball and baseball and how people are often looking at the wrong things and the, how often the less sexy things can also be much more profitable, beneficial. And then you, more recently published a book on ketones and, and, and the value of ketogenic diets and ketosis. And, um, and I'll just say one other thing is that ironically, a friend of mine who unfortunately is quite ill right now with cancer. And when I first heard, I, uh, you know, implored upon him to, um, look at this, look at fasting before chemo, look at all the different things, but he has a traditional medical background and um, he didn't go that path initially, but my understanding now is that he is now looking back in this direction quite seriously. So um, anyway, so I'd love you to talk a little bit about curable, why you picked up this topic because uh, it's very interesting what, what, what you did and how you pulled it together. And then we'll, I think there'll be a natural evolution into ketosis and into your business and Care Oncology USA and what you're doing and, 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 uh, and how you're mimicking ketogenic diets with some of the protocols, et cetera. So, yeah. That's yeah. A canvas. Yeah, it is a broad canvas. Yeah. Curable was kind of sparked by, <clears throat> When I started Care Oncology USA, sort of when we kind of started to wade into into traditional oncology and you know conversations with oncologists, and and some of them were just shocking, and it really sparked my interest in in healthcare and and why you know the broader question is why why in America when we spend almost twenty percent of our GDP on healthcare do we have such sub subpar outcomes? compared to the rest of the developed world, which spends about half that, about 11%, and has better longevity, better, you know, less chronic disease, better health status. So what are we doing wrong? What are the inefficiencies that are in our system? And, and that was kind of the overarching question that, that Curable looked at. And it is such a huge topic that I, that I kind of latched on to this 
the formation of this healthcare group by by Warren Buffett and um, Charlie Munger's Berkshire Hathaway. They formed an internal healthcare group. It's called Maven now. And the idea was to try it. It's gotten so bad and it was such a drag on, you know, it's a drag on corporate America that a drag on their business in particular, they decided to build a healthcare system from the inside out. And, and they are in particularly, they think in this way of how, you know, they've been trained to think in this way as any investment person, how do you, where are the inefficiencies and how do you root them out? And when you really dive into it, you, you realize that they're coming from just from human beings, the way we think, the way we process data, we're not very good at making decisions under clouds of uncertainty, which is what medicine largely is. Doctors are constantly trying to diagnose with little data. Um, and, and so it's really baked into the human condition. And so the, the answer, you know, the question, how do you fix that? And, and there, we're starting to see these little pockets of brilliance where people are figuring out ways to bypass these intrinsic biases and, you know, deliver healthcare more efficiently, more efficiently. But, you know, to, to adopt this to a national scale, I I don't know if it'll ever happen or it'll just be excruciatingly slow. I'm sure we'll get there eventually, but, you know, on the time scale, I don't know, but it it just, you know, the book, it could have been more focused. I felt like it it was kind of scattered in a way, but when you're trying to, to, to sort of corral this topic of healthcare, it's, it's a brutally hard process. Well, it, you know, interesting. Um, now Haven is, is looking cause Atulka one day stepped down, right. As CEO. Yeah. Yeah, he did. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's a huge undertaking, but, um, how, do you have any sense of how much from all, I mean, from all your research and I, and I realize you're not a physician, although that probably makes you more capable, not less, but how much of this country's poor outcomes is as much the, you know, <laughs> when, when you're doing algorithms and you're looking for data, you, you know, garbage in, garbage out, how much of our lack of health and our poor diet, poor quality of food, not just food choice, quality of ingredients and everything, do you think uh, it, you know, impacts that? Because to me, I think that's just a, a huge opportunity in this country is to keep people out or to start the interventions really early. Yeah. Um, I think that transitions to, you know, the, the next book really very smoothly because uh, th- when I look, when you look at the, to, to me, when you look at the biggest problem in, in America and in, in, in the world, really, I was shocked looking at the data from around the world. I thought that, that sort of this, 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 uh, pathology of insulin resistance and um, diabetes was particularly a Western world problem, but it's not, it's, it's everywhere. And, and that's one of the biggest sort of healthcare crises that we have. And it costs the, our, our healthcare system billions and billions every year. And it's this, this process of, you know, we, we, the, the fundamental question is what as human beings, how are we supposed to live? What are we supposed to eat? And, and, and you go back and you look at the history of humanity and right, modern agriculture really started about 11,000 years ago. We got access to these very cheap grains and they were easy. They could feed people in bulk. And so it's really this unintended this experiment to shift our physiology to what it, what it was before that when we were hunter gatherers primarily. Um, and we went through long periods without access to food. So we had, you know, fasting baked into our lives. Um, how has that changed 
our, our health. And, and when you look at it, it's, it's really profound. Over half of the U.S. population has insulin resistance or frank type 2 diabetes. And what does that mean? And when you look at it, it means that you lose the ability to process the machi- cellular machinery to process carbohydrates sort of wears out. And there's lots of different kind of competing theories on why this happens. No one's quite sure why it happens. But so you lose the process, you lose the ability to just manufacture energy, really. And, and this affects the entire metabolism. Your, your metabolism is, is run largely off these four molecules we call nucleotide couples. And most people have heard of ATP. That's one of the primary ones. And these are the energy capturing molecules. When you eat food and it gets processed into energy, the energy is captured in these molecules. Then they diffuse throughout the cell to power metabolism, which consists of thousands of reactions. And so when you get a diminished ability to, to charge these energy carrying molecules, every single reaction suffers. So you make less serotonin, you make less dopamine, you're unable to get rid of toxic proteins. And, and so, and when you look at people with diabetes, you know, you, you see this just myriad, this constellation of, of pathologies that go from, from cardiovascular to nerve damage to eyesight. It, it's, it, it's everywhere. And so I think that one thing, David, you know, if you, we could, if we could go back to step one, you know, what, what do you put in your mouth? How often do you get up and move? That would go a huge way to solving the, you know, what we call it, what this healthcare crisis really is. Yeah. I've got a great book. It's a short one. It was written by a woman. She was at NASA for over 30 years. I don't know if you've seen it. It's called sitting kills. And I think it's sitting kills and moving heels is the subtitle. Yeah, that's um, exactly right. Yeah, and and so what? What is the? I mean, there's a range. We have different genetics. We, but what? What is the range? Like I know for me, I've had my genetics run through several different services, and every last one of them says I need to significantly increase my protein intake. And um, and I've done the mostly vegan with a little bit of fish here and there. I've tried everything. I can't actually go without some meat in my diet. Um, uh, and, um, but everyone's a little different. So what, what is the range that you see for people that at least that's achievable? As far as what they should eat, you mean? Yeah. I mean, you know, a a ketogenic diet's not practical for most people. Um, you know, there's got flavors like modified keto, which is where probably I float in between. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I think I think just in general, when, when you look, the the advice would be to just limit the amount of cheap carbohydrates, and, and they're they're everywhere. They're ubiquitous. When you go, you know, the grocery store, that's what you see. It's it's just most packaged foods are just packed with with especially you know high fructose corn syrup. And most things to do with corn because it's it, to manufacture it is is cheap and easy. And so I think that's the the number one offender is just the fact that we are constantly, you know, inundating ourselves with carbohydrate, which causes this very stereotypical um, cellular response. We release insulin and then it it soaks up this blood sugar uh, into the cells. And then that triggers lipogenesis and, and you create fat from the excess. And so the idea is, well, what is the natural the question, I guess, is what is the natural state of man? I would say that, you know, most people in the Western world probably never enter that state of ketosis. And it doesn't have to be a ketogenic diet. Fasting is a very, you know, easy 
way to do it. And, but even just cutting out carbs and being highly active, you're going to be in ketosis in and out. Um, so it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't default to this idea. Well, you got to eat a ketogenic diet. It's just simply a matter of cutting out this bulk of carbohydrates, being active and occasionally, you know, perhaps doing a fast, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it, you know, it's interesting. I've talked to, I've, I've had several people ask me about their kids in the last, uh, it's about, I think it's four people in the last two months and um, kids are having in, severe anxiety issues. One, uh, her daughter has scores to get into any college of her choice. And she's going to a, you know, a, a smaller state school um, that because she is too anxious to go to a better school. Now, I, and I, I'm not judging my, my oldest son's at a state school and I love it. And I think it's perfect. So that's not what it's about. It's relative to what she had previously wanted. Mm-hmm. And then um, another friend, and they're all, they're all around anxiety and neurology issues around teenagers. Every last one of them, I said, what's the carb intake? <laughs> yeah. And every last one of them is, you know, oh, carb addict, carb addict, can't get them off the carbs. I had another friend with a three, four-year-old, can't get them off the carbs, acting out, acting this. Yeah. And it's, it is extremely consistent, but I do think there was a significant bacterial issue too. Um, that yeah, they're, feeding, they're related to each other, right? Yeah, you're, it, it's not just the straight insulin response, but it also, it feeds on it. What bacteria are you feeding when you feed them carbs? Um, and so, uh, it, and it's very hard. And that's where the microbiome comes in and where, you know, there are people who have had microbiome transplants. They were thin. They got a transplant from an obese person. They became obese. Yeah. And vice versa. <laughs> They're running the show. So, um, so, uh, you know, I'd love to dive in and with incurable about just, you know, talk about maybe a little bit of, of the history of how you think of, of how you see, which is similar to what I see healthcare has evolved and, and, and this chronic issue of refusing to do simple, easy things, some of which are, you know, insane that doctors don't do this, like telling patients with cancer to eat better food, um, to this day at major medical institutions. Um, but I'd love you to talk a little bit about kind of the history of medicine and how it's evolved and some of those critical junctures where we chose to ignore, yeah. you know, better paths. Yeah. 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 The book, I tried to, I tried to kind of sum it up into two buckets. One was this, you know, this pervasive problem of over-treatment and, and variation in treatment. And then the second bu- bucket was ignore or just underutilization of these very simple things, like the things we've been talking about. And the reason they're ignored, you know, always comes back to money. There's just no money in, in telling someone to up their vitamin D or even though that does happen from general practitioners. Um, but, you know, the story that I that I told in the book was about the fecal transplant. It's a remarkable story. And, and there's, a you know, there's more than one stories like this. The story of the ketogenic diet, which was standard of care for pediatric ep- epilepsy in the 20s. And then was just discarded once these, you know, anti-seizure drugs came out and then had to be rediscovered when you re- in the 90s, when they realized how these drugs, you know, didn't weren't a panacea. They didn't work in a, in a 
significant fraction of the time where the ketogenic diet did. Um, but the fecal transplants got a really unique history. It goes back to World War II and the Germans were in North Africa during the North African campaign. And there was this terrible outbreak of dysentery. And the medics noticed, it was terrible. There was, soldiers were dying, they were dehydrated. They noticed that the local, the, the Arabs, the local tribe wasn't getting sick. And so the medics looked and they followed them around and they noticed they were getting sick, but when they, when they got sick, they went, followed a camel around. And when the camel defecated, they, they'd literally scoop it up and just eat the shit. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they, they couldn't, and they asked them why they're doing that. And there was like, well, my, my dad taught me to do that. And it was just local legend on what to do. And so they, the Germans flew in chemists and microbiologists and other MDs, and they studied the camel dung and they found, they isolated a single bacterium, um, uh, Bacillus subtilis, Bacilli subtilis. And that bacterial strain, it's a commensal. So it's part, you know, it's part of the, it can be part of the normal microbiome, but it's a very aggressive sort of probiotic. So when it goes in, it's got all these antimicrobial um, uh, sort of antibiotics that it produces internally and it, it kills, it competes really heavily with the other um, commensals and kills, you know, the pack, the pathogen that was causing, causing dysentery. And so that became standard of care in the forties, uh, for dysentery. It was a probiotic and it worked wonderful and, and it worked, you know, they get, they finally gave, they started with camel dung, but then they isolated the, the, the bacteria and gave it to the German troops and cured the dysentery. But then the story shifts to, you know, penicillin was discovered and then doctors started prescribing that for dysentery. Um, and, you know, the rest is history. We, we've overused antibiotics at the expense of we did have this moment in time where we could have gone another way, where we could have realized, appreciated the, how the, you know, what the microbiome was and what these probiotics could potentially do in certain cases. Um, and you go, you follow that that logic. And, and then you, you, in the story of the fecal transplant, C, C. diff is a huge problem in hospitals. I think if you're there for four weeks, you have a 50% chance of acquiring C. diff and it's a horrible, horrible form of dysentery. And the end stage of C. diff, you know, you, you die, you, you can't, if it doesn't respond to antibiotics and you get to that end stage, it's, it's a horrible death. You, you just sort of are eaten from the inside. And it's, you know, I can't remember, I think it's 30,000 people die a year, 15,000 directly attributed to C. diff and, and the other 15 indirectly attributed um, from every year. So it's this massive problem. And what was, what people found out was if you did a fecal transplant, it was almost always successful and the doctors didn't want to do it. So it cropped up on the internet. There was these DIY sort of, you know, YouTube videos of people showing other people with C. diff how to do it. And it kind of morphed into this thing where, where the patients were demanding this, the medical community had no idea what to do with it. And finally, the NIH decided to have a symposium on it. And they were talking, and right at that time, the clinical trial data came out on fecal transplants for C. diff, and it showed a 94% cure rate. In fact, they stopped the trial early because the people in the other antibiotic groups, it was you know negligent for the doctors to let them continue, so they gave them fecal transplants. And as they were sitting there debating what to do with a fecal transplant, there was one or two um, patients in the room and they finally let them speak. Um, and they, they, it was, you know, it was this wonderful sort of 
recapitulation back to what healthcare is because they were going to regulate it as an investigational new drug. And what that means is if any doctor wanted to do it, there was just a mountain of regulatory work and liability that went along with it. Effectively just, you know, was a no by the, by the NIH, by the FDA. Um, and so the, the, the patients spoke up and go, look, we, we know the risk, which is minimal. We're, we're going to die. If we don't get a fecal transplant, we know the outcome. We're most likely going to die. We're asking you just to take a little risk on our behalf. And it kind of changed, it instantly sort of changed the tone in that room and the doctors and, you know, physicians and regulators realized, you know, what this was at stake. And, and they, they took away the investigational new drug part, um, but still it was left under this cloud of uncertainty, but, but it still gave the doctors, you know, a little bit more capacity to prescribe it. But it, it just goes to show how what gets lost in, in just common sense and risk a rational risk reward ratio because doctors have to have to go and regulators have to go through this process of assuming risk and liability and and you know going through this regulatory process where the patients just want to live you know so it was one of those kind of striking moments where <laughs> you 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 realize how far off healthcare can get and and you need to just just reincorporate a little common sense to bring it back yeah i'll, I'll give you a little disclosure on that topic um so uh, back in 2011, a friend of mine who I have a lot of respect for said, we have a chance to invest in this company. And the original name I'm drawing a blank on, it's now called Rebiotics. Uh, and it's run by a, a woman, Lee Jones, who's a phenomenal, she's unbelievable CEO. But um, yeah, and I was told by my friend at the time, you know, she's, she's an amazing operator, great track record. Okay, what's the topic? FMT. And I'm like, I don't know. Is that a business? It's not, it's 2011. It's not regulated yet. And, um, but they had, you know, but when you looked at the way they were putting the company together, I'm like, okay. And I went to my mother-in-law who's a vet, uh, has an animal rescue farm, has a PhD in hematology. And I, and I said, would you help me look at this company? Do you have an interest? Like, you know, uh, what do you think of fecal transplant? And she looked at me and she said, well, She's like, it goes back hundreds and hundreds of years, if not longer, but every time an animal gets sick, you go to another animal that is healthy, you take their shit, you put it in the feet of the other, of the sick one, and the next day they're fine. <laughs> right. And she said, that's like the first day of vet school. Of course, sense. Yeah. And, um, and so, uh, you know, and now this company still doesn't have FDA approval. Uh, their first trial, the very, their very first trial, I don't know, seven, eight years ago, and, and they they finished their phase three. COVID has prevented them from submitting and getting all their data in perfect form to submit, which hopefully will be done by early next year. But um, their first trial, 19 out of 20 people fully recovered. The one that didn't was an elderly woman who fell and broke her hip and had other health issues. But was everyone it, else was it for C. diff? Is that what they're doing? Oh yeah, yeah, for C diff, single dose C diff, and um, you know vancomycin, which I don't, which I, I know you talked about metronidazole, which is often used for uh, Crohn's and colitis as well. I think you mentioned that one in particular. It became vancomycin, and vancomycin has lost efficacy. And what people don't understand, at least a couple of years ago, vancomycin is seven, eight thousand dollars for a course of it. It's not, you know, a small dollar figure that you would get for a standardized. Um, antibiotic. 
And now there's obviously stronger stuff coming and there's other things like phages and other therapies that are coming that are very targeted. But those also go in what you also mentioned, interesting thing maybe worth talking about is like the shiny new thing that's supposed to fix everything. Um, and we wait and we sit there and we wait. So I'll take the risk of talking too much. And just one more thing was I went to a fundraiser for uh, Cornell Weill, New York Hospital. It's got to be about six, seven years ago. And they said, oh, we're doing all this, you know, uh, research on the microbiome. And we're, we're going to, within a couple of years, you're just going to take a couple uh, pills and you're going to be fine. And someone in the audience said, well, what's a couple of years? How long, like how long until the trial's done and how long until, and there's about five years. And she looked and this woman was clearly ill, um, suffering. And she's like, well, what can you do for me now? And like, all I want to do is come across and say, well, you need, you know, diet. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they don't have an answer. And yet they have nutritionists and, they, and they're getting better. The, the institutions are getting, some of them are getting better. Um, but, but maybe talk about that, that depending on technology, depending on the new thing, um, diverting us from going back and using, let's say, things like metformin, uh, drugs like metformin that are old, well-tested, and by the way, metformin works uh, preliminary data on COVID extremely well. Yeah. Yeah. Anything that lowers blood sugar seems to have a reduce the severity of COVID. You know, to, to I, I was kind of shocked by that. I didn't know how viral illness was so related to sort of metabolic dysfunction. But yeah, that's another, that's a whole nother bucket of, of things, of, of very simplistic things that that our healthcare system does not capture the the value of, and that's repurposing drugs like metformin. And the idea of drug repurposing, when you look at it, there's about six thousand drugs worldwide approved by the various agencies, and most most of these are small molecules. And small molecules have been shown to affect about six relevant pathways in the cell. So they'll, they'll typically get approved by, for one indication, one or two indications by the FDA or whatever. And then doctors are you know, free to prescribe it for that one disease. But then once these drugs like metformin was approved for type 2 diabetes, once they get in the clinic and they get prescribed to you know, hundreds of thousands of people for decades and decades, you get this whole other layer of epidemiological data. And you, and you can find things that the drug is doing that you didn't expect. Uh, metformin, for example, it was noticed that type two diabetics on metformin had, had greatly reduced cancer rates for certain kinds of cancer. And, and they even lived longer. They had a, a greater life expectancy. I think it was 15% over the general healthy population. So it was very clear early on that metformin was doing something, you know, very extraordinary to sort of, you know, prevent a lot of disease processes. And I think what it comes down to is, Again, we're over-consuming carbs. We're just overfed in general. And metformin is sort of a, a pill way to, um, you know, mimic the things like fasting, ketogenic diets. It, it just lowers your the blood sugar and your, your body's ability to kind of process energy, which trips all these kind of caloric restriction pathways, very healthy pathways. Um, but, but once that's established, you know, and the data is very clear 
It's, it's, there's been so many of these studies through medical records, through large-scale epidemiological data, literally hundreds and hundreds. And yet there's no mechanism for doctors to prescribe metformin for a different indication. Um, and then now that it's become a generic, you know, it's about five cents a pill, there's zero incentive for a pharmaceutical company to study it. So it just kind of gets lost in this never, never land. Um, and that's that. And there's lots of these drugs, you know, that do this like mebendazole. It's an old deworming drug and it's been shown to have extremely potent anti-cancer activity. And the good thing about drug repurposing is because they've been around so long, you know, the pharmacodynamics, you know, the interactions, you know, the safety, you know, the profile. So you can, you can sort of repurpose them or prescribe them off label with a, a higher degree to safety than a new drug that's just come out and you're undoubtedly going to uncover some you know, new toxicologies down the road once it's in the clinic for, for years and years. Um, and it just doesn't get utilized to the degree that, you know, it should, we have these wonderful tools. We could repurpose many, many drugs for different diseases, but we just don't have a good mechanism in healthcare to do that. Yeah, you know, metformin. So uh, I'm I'm on the board of this American Federation for Aging Research, AFAR, and near Barzilai, who you mentioned in your book at Einstein. Um, it, you know, he's he's running the team for anti-aging, and so um, we had a board call back in June, and I, you know, eventually, um, lesser educated people like me got to speak or ask questions, I should say, not speak. Um, and I, and I had two questions. One was for near, and that is, um, because, and my question was really more, not that I knew it much other than around metformin, maybe helping with secondary bacterial infections. Cause I'd heard about antibiotics being used, um, for, to help with, um, COVID. And he said, well, you know, it was originally developed and the, or the first real use was, was for the flu. And he said, and the preliminary data out of China, this is back in June, was that there was a 75% reduction in death rates for the, amongst those who were on metformin. So I Googled it while we were talking, and there's a PubMed article, which I didn't bother to click through, and it says, metformin was rediscovered in the search for anti-malarial agents in the 1940s, and during clinical tests proved useful to treat influenza when it sometimes lowered blood glucose. This property was pursued by Jean Stern, who first used metformin to treat diabetes in 57. And so, um, yeah, interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of those um, with the flu. If you even look at like an over-the-counter medic or um, uh, supplement like melatonin, just, just Google the influenza data with melatonin. It's pretty, it's pretty compelling. And, and I noticed that was one of the um, supplements they gave uh, um, Trump when he was administered, when he went to the hospital, zinc, vitamin D, and melatonin. And look at look at the recent data on the ketogenic diet in influenza. It's, it's extremely compelling, too. It springs to life this class of T cells in your respiratory system that produce mucus and sort of trap the virus during that initial infection process. And same thing, they infected the mice with influenza, one group on a ketogenic diet, the other in the control, and there was significantly less death in the ketogenic diet group. Yeah. So a lot of these simple things, vitamin D, you know, there, there's many, many things. And I wonder in combination, you know, if you stack those things, 
how severe this disease would be in, in people if you'd mitigate a lot of those, you know, spiraling outcomes. Yeah, and anti-parasitics too, generally, which seem to work. And you can get herbal ones. You don't have to get into really heavy drugs. Um, I, I got something at the beginning of COVID. I don't know what it was, but I took tons of liposomal glutathione and, and um, quercetin and zinc and D and um, and and a bunch of antiparasitics and megadosing. And it was whatever it was, it was gone in within two, three days. Uh, anyway, yeah, no, in, interesting. So I'd love you to talk about care oncology. Um, and also if there's any updates on the glioblastoma study um, that uh, that was going on that I've seen some updated data, but I'm, I'm not fully up to date. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Care, Care Oncology is, is a company that it actually got started in the UK. And I met those guys over in the UK and was just compelled by what they were doing. So I, we, I agreed to start the local branch here in the US. And since then, we've expanded to, to a telemedicine network that covers all the entire all 50 states. And it's the same, it's this idea of repurposing drugs. They, in the UK, they looked at the data from generic drugs and and cancer, especially in synergy, especially in combination with standard of care, and came up with a cocktail that they believed was, you know, the most potent. It consists of four different drugs and prescribe it as an adjunctive to can to standard of care. And it's not competing with standard of care in any regard. It's its entire purpose is to to facilitate or, you know, to increase the efficacy of standard of care. And there's very kind of elegant bio biochemical reasons how it does this and why. Um, but it's, you know, it, it's what, what it was one of those those just sort of unmet needs. And, and we, the idea of behind care was to stay consistent. There's a lot of, a lot of doctors out there doing this kind of stuff, but they'll do it in a, you know, a, they'll just vary from one patient to the next. And the idea with care was we wanted to stay consistent and capture the data. And we published on glioblastoma a while, a while back. The first publication was 100 patients in the trial group. And what we showed is the patients that were on the care oncology protocol, um, it about doubled their median lifespan from about 15 months to, to 27 point something. And very minimal side effects. And the caveat with that data is we didn't get the average time that they began the care oncology protocol was already 10 months po post-diagnosis. So it was very well into the disease process. So we're very, you know, we're very optimistic, convinced that if we do, when we do get data, when we get to, to the patients at time of diagnosis, that data is going to get just better and better. And I mean, yeah, we've, we re-looked at it since then, and, and the, you know, we haven't published it yet, but includes the cohort, includes many more patients, and we're seeing the same, you know, the same outcome. So is 15 months for someone without it living only five months past the 10 months, and you're actually adding 17 months? Yeah. Yeah. So from the time of treatment, it's over triple. There are people without it are living five more months on average, but yours are living 17 months more. Yeah, you can look at it that way. We, 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 you know, the doctors and the scientists that tried to present the data, tried to present it as bad as possible, <laughs> you know, so, so it, it was not, 
we didn't want it to appear at all an exaggeration at all. So it's a very, you know, it's a very modest way of looking at the data. But yeah, we didn't, the average time that we got to them was 10 months out. So you could, you could look at it the way you looked at it. And, and there, there had to be some patients that came much earlier. I mean, I don't know if it's 520 or 50 or two, but. Yeah. And and we saw that in the U S yeah, we, we got, because people started hearing about ketogenic diets and metabolic therapies for cancer, we, we, when we opened in the U.S., we started getting patients very early. And the ones that we got early, you know, there, there are stars. And, and especially, you know, the younger patients that were really proactive and wanted to do as much as they could. There's some that did a ketogenic diet, very, you know, very strict. They, got, they hired nutritionists to help. Um, and then they did the care oncology protocol in addition to standard of care. And those are the ones that we are just seeing these incredible um, outcomes right now. We have some that are over three years out with zero evidence of disease. The MRIs have even, the, the uh, resection margins are, have even cured. Um, you can't even see the scar tissue. So yeah, that, that's exactly right. If we can get to patients very early and they can do other metabolic therapies in addition, that's when I think we're going to see these this huge step change in a in a cancer like glioblastoma, which is you know arguably the worst cancer um, compared to pancreatic, is 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 very bad too. But it's a, a very tough cancer to beat. And you, you know, I had um, let's see what the date is. I had Allison Gannett, um, who was originally a patient of Nasha Winters, who was in your the foreword of your of your book. Uh, or the comment, you know, an endorsement. Um, so she had, and I don't know exactly, I think it was seven years, and this is two and a half years ago, so almost 10 years ago, she had glioblastoma, she's a world-class extreme skier, um, and she uh, wound up with glioblastoma, and they operated, but they did not get the margins, and she started working with Nation Winters, she's now a keto coach, and she's she's fine. Wow. Did, did just do you know if she did standard of care, David? I believe after surgery she did nothing else standard of care. Wow. After. Okay. Yeah, you know it's funny. There, there's these real outliers. I'm um, looking at uh, five years ago. So okay, so five years ago, this is two and a half years ago. So she's eight years now. Faced late stage cancer and only had one surgery. That's what that's what the my intro from then. Um. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. There's these real outliers like Andrew Scarborough. You can Google him. And then Pablo, I can't think of his last name, but he, he was over in the UK. Um, he's a, I think he was an actor. He's some, he was famous for something, but they, they forewent a standard of care, especially the radiation. They didn't, you know, Tom Seyfried makes a pretty compelling case that the radiation, although it does extend the medium overall lifespan of GBM patients, it it accelerates the disease at the end. In other words, you're, you're less likely to get out or escape it. You know, to have to be a long term survivor because it's just so caustic and carcinogenic in its own right. So there's this subset of patients. They're they're very young, but they've adopted a ketogenic diet, and that's it. And they've basically, you know, they're out. I think Andrew's out over five years, and I think Pablo almost is too. Um, so it's it's astonishing, you know that that to just 
have, do that, just do a dietary therapy for the cancer like that and have that kind of outcome is, you know, it's certainly, <laughs> it certainly warrants further study. Yeah. There's also, um, uh, our crowd, which is a, uh, is an investor in this company. It's an Israeli company, um, that I came across and they use alpha radiation to, um, and little seeds that they, you know, that only stay in you a couple of days and they're curing all types of cancer. And right? as the, the radiation is extremely short half-life, um, it's, it's fascinating stuff and it should, it should, uh, redefine, um, the way radiation is, is given, but, you know, as, as procurable, who knows when it breaks through. Um, but they're finishing, they're towards the end of clinical trials and it, it should be used on a compassionate basis. Um, and I think, and they've, they've already treated over a thousand humans. Um, and it's pretty, pretty amazing stuff. So that's another way things are changing where people are taking unique approaches. Yeah. Yeah. Bravo. You know, I'm, I'm, I keep an open mind and there's no thing that should be off the table. Immunotherapies, any kind of new radiation, all those things. And especially in combination, that's when it gets exciting. And, and, you know, even radiation, when, when there's a good data that shows if you enter radiation in the state of ketosis, there's these very elegant biochemical things that happen where your, your normal cells are able to produce more antioxidants. They're able to recycle glutathione faster so they can deal with the ionizing radiation. Whereas cancer cells have trouble burning ketones and, and you've dropped blood glucose, so they don't produce as much glutathione. So you've set this therapeutic differential where cancer cells are more susceptible to the radiation and your healthy cells are more able to withstand it. And it's amazing. You look at, Walter Longo did a study. Uh, he's at UCLA. He just had patients fast before chemotherapy. And when they went in in the fasted state, I think it was 48 to 72 hours, you could look at the side effects and they were just astonishingly diminished. And it was objective side effects, like the number of times you vomit, you know, went from like five a day to zero. The mouse sores that you can count were dramatically reduced. And the, and the subjective ones like fatigue and numbness and tingling, all those were diminished. So, you know, again, back to these just extraordinarily simple things you can do. And it, it, who knows that alpha radiation you're talking about, you know, I'm sure like a fast or ketogenic diet would, would set that therapy up to even do better. Why not? Yeah. So how, how many, I would think it would, um, how many, how many patients, how, how big has care oncology gotten in the U S and back in the UK? In the, well, the U S we've grown to, I think we have six oncologists on staff. Now we have a, a full, um, support staff of nurses now that are there to answer questions. Uh, I think we have about five nurses and a, a plethora of case managers up front. Um, and so it, it's amazing with telemedicine, you know, we're able to, to, provide access that we unprecedented that we just never would have had before. And we're, you know, very confident with these medications. We can do it remotely like that. And they're monitored extremely well. And, you know, it's just, it's so empowering for a patient to not have to sit in a waiting room and drive, you know, and get five minutes with a doctor. 
they get the, the initial consult, they get up to an hour with the oncologist and they can do it, you know, in their pajamas from home. So I love the, I love the model. It just turned out to be this wonderful, you know, uh, just adjunctive therapy for patients that, that they seem to it, it just, it ticks all the boxes with healthcare. It, what's wrong with healthcare. It seems to, to solve a lot of those problems. Yeah. I mean, I wonder how much we've all gotten so much time back and we've also lost that most of us this feeling that we need to be in the rat race because no one's in it right? all this time. But in healthcare, it's really, really fascinating to me because the amount of formal telemedicine calls like Teladoc hasn't gone up that much. But my understanding of Zoom and other sources that are not necessarily HIPAA compliant or whatever has gone up over a hundredfold since March. Wow. We we were already seeing the trends with our kids. Like if we had a problem, uh, you know, kids tend to get sick and have problems at night or not tell you till it really gets unbearable at night. And then, you know, we started years ago, you know, uh, texting pictures and getting on the phone on the cell phone with the doctor at eight o'clock at night and never having to go to the, uh, to their office, especially during flu season. Um, so this just, this has been, has been a boon. Um, and, and what other cancers are you, do you have many uh, pancreatic cancer patients? We weren't very well represented in pancreatic and I don't know what those numbers are now. We just actually went through them, but, um, you know, it's, it's gone up. Um, and we don't have data, you know, the only data we have that we've published is GBM. So we plan on publishing on other cancer types as we go on, but we need to get, you know, a, a decent cohort size before we do it. And love to hear about your foundation. Yeah, the metabolic. So, so what we, we focus on metabolic cancer therapies and my first book tripping over the truth was about looking at cancer from this sort of different theoretical angle that it's better described as a, a metabolic epigenetic disease than the way it's been described historically, which is called the somatic mutation theory, which describes cancer as a disease of genetic mutations. And so when you, when you look at cancer in this new lens, you, you really need to kind of re, reconfigure the way you're, you think about treating it. And that's where these ideas like the ketogenic diet and, and metabolic acting drugs like metformin come in. Um, and, and again, because there was no, there's no money in those, di- those therapies, it's really incumbent on foundations and hopefully the NCI or NIH to, to step in and do that kind of research. They've been slow to react to it, but we've had some some donors, uh, wonderful wonderful donors that have been very vocal, and they want to see these you know these things addressed. So we're actually trying to kick off a diet or a, a trial at Cedar Sinai, which will be a st- statistically significant trial on just adding the ketogenic diet to standard of care for for glioblastoma, and it, it will be the largest ketogenic diet trial to date. Um, the PI, he's a wonderful doctor, Jethro Hu at, at Cedar Cyanide. And so I think this trial has a chance of, of really, um, w- you know, waking people up to the, the power of just, you know, looking at what cancer patients are eating. And it's got the, all the credibility of, of the institution of Cedar Cyanides and, and, you know, just wonderful dietitians behind it. So we're almost there. We, we, we're providing, I think, the bulk of the funding and, and he's applying for a few more grants and then that look really good. And then we'll be, we'll be ready to kick it off. 
Yeah, that's that that would be powerful. Um maybe maybe talk a little bit about um your your just the book itself on ketones, the fourth fuel. And maybe a little just a little more history, some of which you know, some some of the actual history you covered in in our first interview, which is I I thought was good. I thought it was very good, but I'm biased. Um but maybe talk a little bit about the science and the history, because I think it's a, it's a very interesting history, um, you know, going back to Warburg and really even way before Warburg. But yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. The, because the ketogenic diet, you know, sort of worked its way into the fad diet. Um, everybody's kind of heard of it. A lot of celebrities do the ketogenic diet. And I, I just wanted to tell the story about where it came from, which is, you know, it's a remarkable story, like you said. It, it goes, a lot of the, the research on why ketones are special, why they have these really potent and unique biochemical properties was done by a gentleman named Richard Veach at the NIH and, and his professor at Harvard, George Cahill. And so the book kind of follows, really centers on Richard Veach and his life. And he got his PhD actually under Hans Krebs, who is a Nobel Prize winning uh, biochemist who elucidated the Krebs cycle, which is a central cycle of metabolism, right? Arguably the most important um, metabolic um, intermediate reactions within, you know, in all of metabolism. And he, Veach was his star student. And uh, Krebs got his PhD under Otto Warburg, who again is is a probably one of the best biochemists of the of the 20th century won the Nobel Prize was nominated for three other on three other occasions so it's this incredible scientific lineage that led up to Veach and Veach kind of actually just stumbled into the into research on ketones he wasn't drawn to that initially um, but it was this beautiful synergy what the work he did in Krebs lab showed uh, back to metabolism, again, show that the, all metabolism driven largely by these four nucleotide couples. And they realized that if there's a way to increase the charge of these couples, it could address so many problems. Um, you know, it, it, was, it would be this incredibly potent therapy. And they, they knew of no way to do that. And then when he started studying, he went back to, he lost his funding at the NIH. He was looking for something to study. And George Cahill, his former professor, was was just starting to realize that this, you know, ketosis, which was always vilified as this pathological state, was actually this very elegant adaptation to starvation. And these ketone bodies that your liver produces to replace blood glucose as a fuel had these really potent properties. So the, there was a shift in perception about what it was. And so Veach began to research ketone bodies. And the research that came out just showed that they're you know fascinating molecules that really change our entire metabolism. They 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 upregulate the energy within all those four couples, so they drive metabolic processes further, and they really solve this problem, this pernicious problem of insulin resistance, where where the machinery to burn glucose wears out because ketones enter, they bypass all of those insulin dependent pathways and and enter the Krebs cycle directly. So they're just they they're just a, a fuel that that can be burned without all you know those those glucose problems, um, and so it tracks you know it tracks that story and then up to modern day ketone research, which really is is exploded to Parkinson's to Alzheimer's, 
to a lot of different, you know, genetic diseases where they're metabolic genetic diseases and particularly insulin resistance and type two diabetes. And, you know, recently, I don't know if you've heard of Verta Health. I'm sure you have, David. Yep. They're, yeah, they're a company that, that is exclusively just using a drugless treatment for type two diabetes. They just put patients on this ketogenic diet and the results are incredible. And the first year they show that the patients on average lose 30 pounds all of their markers of, you know, atherosclerosis and, and lipid dysfunction, all those improve inflammation. Um, so it's, it's a really potent therapy that could potentially, you know, change uh, the way healthcare is done in the country. If people realized how potent this was and were able to change their diets, um, it could go a long way. I haven't looked at Verda in a while. Interesting. Yeah, they're 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 pretty they're an innovative the company and you know what they, what they're selling is is so easy because you know the people flipping the bill the insurance companies or self insured corporations you go look this is a huge problem that's going to cost you a lot of money and make your workforce much less productive and and it's a value based payment system so if they don't fix their patients they don't get paid. Um, so what do you have to lose? You know? <laughs> yeah, that was, um, I'm drawing a blank on his, on his first name. Uh, yeah. Robert bird. Um, uh, is it Robert bird? I think he used to be the CEO of, of Safeway and he got into pay to pay to behave on your health and, um, trying to drive behavioral change. It's not him. It's it's BYRD. He's got a consulting business now, and he wound up leaving Safeway. Um, but they've, you know, the initially the um, unionized employees would not cooperate, and they got the non-union employees, which was many thousands. Um, and he paid them to eat better, to stop smoking, and he was willing to pay them after if they, you know, for the next six months you behaved. If you're already in good shape, you might get paid up front if you weren't. But by the end of the period, you had shown all the markers, you got paid and it worked. Wow. And it worked really well. Um, I'm just trying to find, I can't remember his, anyway, I'll, I'm not going to, during this interview, I'm not going to spend any more time looking, but I'll forward it to you. It was a very interesting, man. Um, and, yeah. and interesting outcomes. Yeah. Um, that's the problem is trying to figure out how to incentivize people. I guess money is probably the best way. <laughs> Well, I, I was a meeting at this morning with someone who's, they have a consulting firm and they have a specialty in behavioral health economics and it, everything comes down payers in terms of saving their, what they pay out and providers, they need to get paid and the patients, especially on prevention. Um, and if you go back into people that when they can't see how the outcome is going to affect them directly. Um, that's why people get, don't get religion until they get sick or they hit rock bottom if they're an addict or until they really get fundamentally understand why something matters. They, they don't behave, but you can pay them. <laughs> they yeah. understand you're not going to get a thousand or 2000 or 5,000 bucks in their pocket or whatever that number is. Um, they get that. So, um, well, yeah, it makes sense. I mean, yeah, the, the payoff would be enormous if you even small incentives like that, you know, if you could solve insulin resistance and diabetes, it, it wouldn't 
wouldn't take a lot of money, you know, to, to reap a huge benefit. Absolutely. So what else, what else can we cover? That's a lot, you know, that is, <laughs> yeah. You know, you know, there's anything else you want to talk about. You got, you have your hands in so many things. Do you, do you have another book coming? No, no, I'm, I'm tired of writing books right now. <laughs> it's a, I don't know if you've ever done it, but it's, it's, it's a wonderful process, but it's an agitating process. It's frustrating. You know, it takes a lot of time and never quite leaves your mind. Um, so it's just nice to not, not think about, I'm sure I'll get excited about something and write, write another book someday, but not at the moment. Yeah, no, right now I've, I've threatened to write books, but I, and I've outlined things, but I've never gone so far as to do it. So someday. Anyway, well, I want to thank you. This was, this was great. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Always a pleasure. I know you and I will keep talking offline. So uh, uh, have a wonderful afternoon because you still have a few hours in your afternoon that I don't. So, uh, and I look forward to seeing you soon. All right. Thanks, David. Take care, Travis.